Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I was raised in the Restoration Movement, and I always understood that we were anti-Calvinists. And so it didn't occur to me that even in my own Bible education, in all of these institutions, that the doctrine of atonement was that of John Calvin. Calvin's doctrine of penal substitution is the understanding of the atonement that almost all evangelicals, in fact, maybe this is what evangelicalism means, is this understanding of atonement. So it may not be his tulip, but it may be his doctrine of atonement. And maybe even among people like ourselves that consider themselves anti-Calvinist. It's still Calvin's doctrine. And even so much so that if you would have claimed to relinquish this doctrine, there are those who think this is to abandon Christianity. But the reality is that the doctrine is not the teaching of the New Testament. It's not the teaching of the early church. But it's the conscious invention of John Calvin. But in the popular imagination, you know, due to Calvin, but maybe due to many followers like Jonathan Edwards, who popularized Calvinism, or Charles Hodge, The idea developed that God punished Jesus the equivalent of an eternity in hell. And the primary rescue that he effected is not connected to the actual historical events surrounding the cross, but with the categories of future eternal punishment. And of course, this then is an inward soulish suffering. Once you go to eternal suffering, it can't be... Uh, simply physical. So my old professor said it this way, he bore the equivalent of an eternity of hell for us all. His suffering was much greater than the physical torture of crucifixion. Since God's wrath is spent on Christ, God is now free to forgive sins without violating his own justice. So that would be Calvin's summation of the gospel. But strangely enough, my own professor, who was a proclaimed anti-Calvinist, sums it up in the same way. Now, it's this passage in Isaiah, chapter 53, where a lot of this comes from. And what I'm going to suggest, there is a misreading of Isaiah 53. But let's read it. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, 
and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was wounded, and from our rebellion he was crushed by our sins. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So most English translations, like the NRSV, say he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. And this is usually interpreted in terms of penal substitution. In fact, this is what Calvin is going to do. That God punished the servant instead of people to pay the penalty for the people's sins and so satisfy God's wrath. This translation is simply incorrect. It's not what the Hebrew or the Greek text actually says. The Hebrew preposition men carries the sense of from or by, not for. And the Greek preposition dia carries the sense of on account of or because of, not instead of. And so the translation should read, he was wounded from our rebellion. You know, this is Peter's sermon on Pentecost. You killed him, and they were cut to their hearts. He was crushed by our sins. Why was he killed? Well, you can see that if this is a messianic passage, this applies directly to Christ. The same preposition appears a few verses later. By oppression and by judgment, he was taken away, stricken, from the rebellion of my people. I mean, this is just common sense. Who killed Jesus? Well, the people killed him. And even in the suffering servant, it's the rebellion of the people. The prophet reveals that the servant suffers not because he's stricken by the hand of God, as they had wrongly supposed in verse 4, but from the rebellion of the people. The servant suffers because the people have by their own unjust acts killed him. Nonetheless, by means of the servant's endurance of the unjust punishment inflicted upon him by the people, God brings forth healing and peace for the people. Though God responds in any numbers of ways in the Old Testament, and even here in Isaiah, Unfortunately, what we get is the, the singular focus on wrath. I'm going to come back to Isaiah. It's this passage, wrongly read by John Calvin, Book 2, Section 16, in your copy of the Institutes of John Calvin, should you want to look it up. I think we can pinpoint exactly where Calvin acknowledges, he says, okay, this is what the Apostles' Creed says, and he says, I'm saying something different. He's going to invent a new doctrine called penal substitution. He's going to use this passage from Isaiah mixed with the passage in 1 Peter from the Apostles' Creed. 
And he's going to change the accepted standard of biblical understanding. And there are elements he borrows from the Augustinian notion of original sin based on the mistranslation of Romans 5.12. There's the notion of nominalism, which is a philosophical understanding that God is in his essence disconnected from earthly representation. So the reformers, but also in Catholicism, there begins this notion that we really don't see the essence of God in Christ. There's Anselm of Canterbury, you know, his legal understanding. But the argument is that his argument is incomprehensible. Now that sounds strange to us. But because he says, well, we're dealing with eternal things. Augustine had made sin inaccessible to explanation with this doctrine of inherited guilt in Romans 5, the mistranslation, in whom all sin, that makes no sense. And Augustine says, yes, it's a great mystery. This mistranslation, this misinterpretation is going to make nonsense of Paul's explanation. And so this is really TULIP, you know, the acronym that Calvin is known by. Uh, it begins with this sin is a mystery and in its transmission it creates darkness and it only admits enough rationality to know you're a sinner but you really can't do anything about it. Philosophical nominalism is the innovation. Things are just beyond our comprehension. But the passage that Calvin is going to turn to in addition to the Isaiah passage is 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22. The main point, he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Whatever Peter's talking about here. The biblical reference is taken up in the Apostles' Creed. And it's understood to be that Christ descended to the place of the dead, that is Hades or the grave. And this is the way that Calvin understands. In other words, there's no misunderstanding. Everybody understands that's what the Apostles' Creed means. But Calvin says, yeah, but I'm going to change it up. And he's going to change it up so that Christ descends to Gehenna. He descends to the lake of fire or a place of eternal punishment. The creed refers to the place of the dead between the crucifixion and the resurrection. But Calvin said, well, even that doctrine seems not to have been taught in the early church. And yet then the creed recognizes its significance. And so why would this peculiar passage, this is Calvin, with its obscure interpretation, find its way into the creed? And so he attaches great significance to its appearance and its obscurity. He fully acknowledges he's innovating on the slippage in the word hell. In the Latin, it's the same problem as in English. Hell can refer to many things. Hell can be originally in the old English, the grave, the place of the dead. And the creed that Christ descended to the place of the dead, this is originally called the, in the Apostles' Creed, the harrowing of hell. But nobody ever thought of it as the harrowing of Gehenna. And so Calvin's first point in his argument, he says the very obscurity of 1 Peter. He said this is a difficult passage. And the Apostles' Creed makes it even more difficult. 
And so if it were simply a matter of saying Jesus descended into the place of the dead, why would it illustrate it by clothing it in this obscure phraseology? I'm quoting John Calvin. Whatever Peter's argument might be referencing, that we understand the conclusion is, like the ark saved the eight from among the generation of Noah, baptism now saves you. That's the point. And the passage is obscure, and the creed is trying to clear up the obscurity, but confounds it. But Calvin says, ah, that's the point. It's obscure, but I'm going to tell you what it all means. I'm going to clear the clouds up. This is Calvin. When two expressions having the same meaning are placed together, the latter ought to be explanatory of the former. But what kind of explanation would it be to say the expression... Christ was buried means that he descended into hell. In other words, that's from the creed. Calvin is presuming that this is a pointer to something more. That the burial of Christ with descent into something more, and he says what this more is, is eternal death. He's making a shift. It may seem insignificant, but it will shift the meaning of the atonement to eternal and future categories. So that's step one. He fuses Gehenna, or the eternal punishment, or eternal death. He fuses that with Hades. He knows he's doing that. And then he argues for that. And then he argues that eternal punishment should also be fused with the Isaiah passage in Isaiah 53. And then he says all of this should be moved to the cross of Christ. The trial and punishment of Christ. Now he says, I know this sounds strange. This is incomprehensible. And of course it's incomprehensible, Calvin says. How could Christ bear eternal punishment in his suffering and death? And he concludes that death alone cannot explain what it was that Christ bore on the cross. So it must be the case that he was suffering eternally in hell or the place of future punishment. That must be what he bore on the cross. Calvin is subverting the New Testament. He's subverting the meaning of the Apostles' Creed. Up until the 16th century, Christians had always confessed Christ's descent into Hades, or the place of the dead, the grave, or even hell. You know, it may have been called that, but it meant Hades. And Calvin sets aside the conclusion of the creed and he has Christ descending into eternal torment while he was still alive. He says, it was requisite that he should fill the severity of the divine vengeance in order to appease the wrath of God. Necessary for him to contend with the powers of hell and the horror of eternal death. And so according to Calvin, even while Christ suffered visibly in the trial and his passion before men, he also experienced, quote, the invisible and incomprehensible vengeance which he suffered from the hand of God. Who killed Jesus? Calvin says, it's God. In other words, the actual death of Christ comes to mean very little in this system as it is eternal spiritual suffering which Christ undergoes in his soul this is Calvin's language 
It's not his mere bodily death. It's not physical death, but it's some sort of spiritual death. And this is the reality behind the physical death. He effectively reduces the object of the fear of death. He talks about the fear of death. The real fear is the fear of eternal punishment. And he makes the real event of the cross an inward event. It's no longer historical or outward. Now maybe we're sort of used to this. We've all become used to the conjunction of the cross and eternal punishment. But there is nowhere in scripture that the cross addresses the category of eternal death, Gehenna, the lake of fire, eternal punishment. It's not there. And Calvin's choice of what may be the most obscure passage in the New Testament, this 1 Peter passage, and then his examination in the Apostles' Creed of the obscuring of this. And then he takes all of this and he transports it to the place of the dead. He fuses that with eternal punishment. And then he takes that and puts it all on the cross. You understand? He's making, he's creating something new. It's a new religion. It's an innovation. He himself says, I'm innovating. He knows it's not the received understanding of the New Testament. And so penal substitutions subsume salvation into a problem with God's anger as the righteous anger brought on by transgression of God's law. And Calvin will put everything into law. It's all legal. Oh, we broke God's law and therefore we're punished. He depicts the entire transaction as law-based. Think for a minute. Jesus suspends the law. He changes the law. He is the author of the law. He's not completing the law or obeying the law. He's lifting the weight of the law off of our shoulders. Calvin says it's an infinite anger provoked by an infinite offense, satisfied by an infinite payment, a lot of infinites that relate hardly at all to the finite. It's an exchange in the Trinity between the Father and the Son. This is the other problem. He pits the Son against the Father or the Father against the Son. There's a split in God. One half of God is angry and the other half in Christ is receiving that anger. And the whole transaction is complete in God in and of itself. Infinite satisfaction has been made but it bypasses the lived reality of human experience. It also bypasses the fact that God's response, if we go back to Isaiah or the Old Testament, is not simply wrath. It's not simply a punishing discipline, which by the way, you know, when we read wrath, we shouldn't think eternal punishment. God's wrath is usually a discipline, a correction. He reacts in sorrow or sadness, like a disappointed parent, a spurned lover. God's wrath is turned away by acts of humility, petition, confession, repentance on the part of the sinner, and frequently by acts of God, just his mercy. My love endures forever, but my anger endures but for a day. In Calvin's picture, love is actually not real. It's an anthropomorphism. It's just God relating to human beings. What's most real about God is his wrath. And so Israel's lack of faith offends God, arousing God's anger. Yet God's first response to 
Israel's sin is not to pour out wrath. What does he do? He rains down manna, right? When the servant encounters accusation and abuse in Isaiah 50 from the people to whom he sent, God comes to his servant's defense. And when the people finally turn in hostility against the servant, taking him away to trial by injustice and putting him to death by iniquity, God lets the people strike down the servant in Isaiah, in their rebellion. But then God not only vindicates the servant, but by a sheer act of grace, he turns the servant's unjust punishment at the people's hands to the people's peace by making the servant's life an offering to heal the people. In other words, this suffering servant passage put in its larger context is indeed very pertinent to the work of Christ. It's a messianic passage. Reading the mission and suffering of the servant in this way, we can see why the Gospels writers, they depict the mission and passion of Jesus as fulfilling the pattern of the servant. So if you go back, you read the four servant songs, you know, in Isaiah, surrounding Isaiah 53, which is the last of the four songs all fall within the section of Isaiah. It's called the Book of Consolation, Isaiah 40 to 55. And that section begins with God announcing comfort, not wrath. Wrath is not the theme. None of the four servant songs makes any mention of or allusion to God's wrath. So, the conclusion. Where penal substitution renders the work of Christ as otherworldly, future, and his teaching is really pre-Christian. This is in Calvinist understanding. We really come to the Christian salvation only after the life of Christ, after he's died and been punished. And so the teaching of Christ is not really pertinent. It's not a part of salvation. But in the biblical picture, that joins the narrative of the Gospels with salvation. What does Jesus do? He casts out demons. He displaces the satanic. He challenges the principalities and powers, the Roman and Jewish powers. He heals people physically. And this is a sign that he can heal them spiritually. That they're under the power of evil and he delivers them from this evil. This is the inauguration and displacement of the dark kingdom with God's kingdom, the kingdom of light. The gospels and the epistles, they're a singular narrative of the defeat of evil, death, and sin through Christ and the church. Instead of sin being a mysterious guilt, an original sin, total depravity, it is a problem that is understood. It pertains to the enslavement to death and evil. And we can witness and explain the hold evil has upon us as the cross exposes this evil, the working of the sin system. We can understand it. It's not a mystery. Paul describes sin as a fearful slavery from which Christ delivers us. He defeats it. He frees us in Romans 8.15. As Hebrews puts it, he freed those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. There's a summation of the atoning work of Christ. And so in Isaiah, God calls the servant to facilitate God's work of redemption 
and restoration. In Isaiah 42, the servant's mission is to teach God's justice. He liberates prisoners from their captivity. He gathers Israel back to God. And the symbolism there in the end of Isaiah is that the nations are brought into the kingdom. All nations are brought in and healed. And this is the good news of the gospel. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org. Dot org.